Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. In case you missed it, yesterday we had the opportunity to talk with John Cooper, whose voice you hear there on Lions from Skillet every single day. So go back and grab the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Today is December the 1st, which means we are reading Luke chapter 1. This is our Advent reading, and so we're going to read a chapter of Luke each day uh, leading up to Christmas. And so... If you haven't already, please join us uh, in reading Luke chapter 1. You'll note covers the um, the birth of the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, uh, the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, when in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Uh, you could talk about the angel Gabriel and the reality of uh, of of an angelic realm and a heavenly host. You could talk about God sending an angel to a city named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. What is the house of David and why does it matter that uh, Jesus comes from this lineage? The virgin's name was Mary. The angel said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What in the world does that mean? She was greatly troubled at the saying. She might have also just been absolutely terrified at the, uh, the scene of an angel appearing. She tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Oh, my. Just consider that for a moment. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus, she says to herself. What? Okay, that's not actually in the Bible, but I imagine it was in Mary's head at this point in time. The angel goes on, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, wait just a minute. Mary knows what that means. Mary knows uh, what that designation um, portends, the Son of the Most High. This child is going to be holy. This this child is going to be the Son of God, which, of course, is what the uh, angel goes on to say. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. Again, wait just a second. What does that mean to be given the throne of of David, King David? Oh, my, this is a messianic prophecy being given by this angel. And the angel goes on to say, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now, Mary is Davidic. She is in the line of David. She knows uh, what this prophecy means. She knows what this angel is saying. And so she does not ask, what are you talking about? She asks, how is this going to happen? Mary said to the angel, and how will this be since I am a virgin? You need to read the rest of Luke chapter 1 uh, today with us. Begin anticipating the great miracle of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We are setting off into the season of Advent. If you need an Advent playlist, there is one posted at the Gospel Coalition. That's a really fun idea to make an Advent playlist Leading my Advent playlist would be Oh Holy Night and Mary Did You Know.
Next up, Mark Caleb Smith. He is going to teach us how to tie a bow tie. Yeah, I know. You're thinking, that is some practical information on Mornings with Carmen. Yes, indeed it is. We'll be right back. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith joining me again this morning from Cedarville University. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So um, my mom once uh, gave a um, a blindfolded tutorial on how to drive a stick shift car. I didn't pay nearly close enough attention to that. But I thought as um, as a COVID exercise this morning, in the spirit of everybody learning something new, you could teach us how on the radio to tie a real bow tie. On the radio. That's very that takes a lot of creativity on my part. Are you sure I'm up to that? I, I am. I'm confident. Go. <laughs> Do it, man. Yeah, it's really not that bad. Um, you have to take your bow tie and you hang it over your neck, of course. You have the right side is a little bit longer than the left side. You f- flap it over like you would just a shoe almost. And you sort of do the, the old uh, over, under, in and out sort of thing. And then one side of the bow tie, you sort of hold up to your neck. The other side, you flap over the front. And then behind the back, there's a little hole, and you just pull the rest of it through it. And see, what I said doesn't make any sense, hardly, unless you're actually doing the bow tie like I am. And even though you can't see it, I just tied a bow tie right now. Not quite perfect, but it's pretty close to perfect. It's basically like tying a shoe. The difference is, though, you're the shoe, and that's what's weird about it. You can tie it easier, I think, on someone else than you can tie it on yourself. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. It's a little bit more natural to tie it on someone else, I think. But it took me it, it took me probably really several years to feel comfortable doing it quickly. You know, now I can do it within just a few seconds. When I first started, it took me uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes to feel like I got it sort of right. The last part's the hardest part, though. When you pull that last part through the hole in the back, you have to be a little bit patient with it and uh, also a little bit forceful, which you don't like to do with silk, but that's just the way you got to do it. Okay, so um, I'm going to need a report back from everyone who's listening who um, (laughs) has a piece of silk uh, available to them that they might listen to Dr. Mark Caleb Smith tell us over the radio how to tie a bow tie um, in his... Uh, bow tie tutorial and see just how effective that that was mark um we might need a youtube video as a follow-up yeah that would probably make more sense to do it to do it visually that's for sure so right but uh, i'm happy to do it i think that the uh, most important part is that we just have to remember we are the shoe yeah i think that's right once you visualize that the rest of it makes sense (laughs) okay so um thank you for indulging me now let's move on to more serious uh, – well, I don't know. That's, that's a pretty serious yeah, matter. But yeah, may- their bow ties are pretty serious to me. Yeah. Very, very – yeah, it's a very serious matter. Okay, so um, we are now um, anticipating a Biden administration. I've, I think that we are all now anticipating a Biden administration. Um, he has begun announcing not only cabinet picks but some other folks as well. One of the areas of uh, major conversation has been in the area of education – I am interested in what it might look like to reform education, probably not like the Biden administration would be thinking about it. But what if for a moment 
um, Mark Caleb Smith was the incoming Secretary of Education, maybe not just for a day, maybe for the next four years. What <laughs> would um, what would you do to start a conversation about reforming education in the United States of America? You know, education is one of those issues. It's kind of like healthcare. <clears throat> it's always there, but it's rarely at the top of anyone's list of what to do. Um, it tends to get crowded out by other issues. And it's also unusual as a political issue because we all experience education at some level. We're all involved in it at some level, uh, either with kid, either as kids or with kids or people in your neighborhood or whatever it may be. Uh, if you're a homeowner, of course, you pay taxes that, that finance school. And so uh, we all are part of education, uh, which I think makes it easy as a political issue in some ways. Uh, but it also makes it really hard for people to get all that enthused or excited about it. Uh, what I would really like to see happen is really a different approach in how we fund schools, honestly. I mean, right now, as I said, we do it primarily through uh, property taxes, a healthy dose of federal funds as well, but primarily through property taxes. And we spend plenty of money on education. I know a lot of the most consistent argument is that we don't spend enough. There's not enough money flowing in to the system. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, when you look at the data, you know we spend upwards of fifteen thousand dollars per student per year on K through twelve education in the United States of America, and that's a shocking number. Um, and then to think of the return we get on that number, uh, I think most people should be somewhat upset about it. And so I, I think we have to really rethink funding. It shouldn't go to, to schools. It shouldn't go to buildings. It shouldn't go to districts. It should go to parents directly. Uh, I'd be in favor of more of a voucher approach to school uh, where parents can make choices about their students' education with that funding in their own pocket uh, and then do what they want with it. I think that would revolutionize the system uh, and would have a dramatic effect. Uh, it would turn it upside down. It'd certainly meet a lot of opposition, which it already has, uh, but I think it'd be an important start. Okay, so we're going to change the way that it's funded. We're going to absolutely open up school choice. We're going to let parents decide. Um, and what will the what will the criticisms and the pushback be against um, the new uh, secretary of education, uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith? What will the pushback be against those ideas? Who and who will push back? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. There probably the biggest pushback would come from uh, this argument that things like vouchers are really beneficial for families who use their resources well already. And so for families who are in reasonably good economic condition, who are used to making these kinds of choices with finances, uh, they're going to be able to use a voucher and make it work for them. Maybe families from uh, lower income levels, maybe families who aren't used to making these kinds of difficult decisions, uh, for them, the voucher doesn't, may not change all that much at all. Um, and so one of the arguments against vouchers is that really maybe advantages people who are already doing well in the educational system. It doesn't help people who are struggling already. Now, you think that it might, but it doesn't necessarily help them. It doesn't help students, for example, that are in rural areas where there's not much competition for schools. I mean, vouchers are really good in urban areas where you can create competition, create new schools, and create a market for, for education. It doesn't work so, so well when there aren't that many students and there aren't that many schools to choose from. And so I mean, there is some reasonable pushback uh, in it. Of course, you'd also get pushback from teachers' unions uh, who really are invested in the current model of education because it benefits them and it benefits their teachers quite a bit. And teachers' unions, as you probably know, one of the most effective lobbying organizations in the country. 
uh, because it's large, it's prevalent, it's in every legislative district, and uh, they can bring a lot of pressure to bear on legislators across the country. So you'd get resistance, and some of it would be reasonable, but it's a discussion worth having. So um, as an advisor to the incoming um, uh, secretary of the Department of Labor, um, Carmen has some some ideas, which she will offer to you um, following the break. So in, in the immediate aftermath of this break, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, whom I have just appointed as the incoming secretary of education um, in I guess in my administration. Um, we're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. I'm of a All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith this morning. We are doing something a little bit different. We're just talking about the broad issue or topic of education, and I am proposing that we reform education in the United States. And I have elected uh, Mark to undertake that task as my um, uh, incoming secretary of education. So you're in the Carmen cabinet for just a moment. Um, and so um, I, what if I were to ask you, um, okay, um, Dr. Smith, why do we, what, what is the point here? Why do we as a nation um, educate the next generation, the way that we do? It's, it's a fundamental question. Um, and we, <clears throat> we disagree about it, uh, honestly. Uh, not you and I, but I think we as a culture have come to different conclusions about why we do this thing called education. Uh, if you look back to really the, the beginning of modern public education during the Great Society, so during the Johnson administration, um, Johnson was very clear uh, that he really saw public education as a key to uh, overcoming poverty, as the key to unlocking economic opportunities for people who were struggling uh, with economic opportunities in America at that point. And so for him, education kind of became this nucleus uh, around which our economic engine would would function. And, you know, in some ways, I think that's just too much. You know, I, I, I understand I want education to make people into uh, effective consumers and effective uh, workers. Um, and that's important, but it seems like pinning all of your hopes and dreams on the educational system to solve something as systemic and difficult as poverty, I'm not sure is the best place to do it. And so, and if you've seen, you know, in the past 50 plus years, we really haven't succeeded that much in looking at education through that lens. Um, I really think, and I think that when you look at education historically, we primarily educate people uh, to perpetuate our political system. I know that sounds horrible to some people who listen and they think, oh, that sounds like indoctrination. Well, we have public schools to educate people in what it means to be a citizen. And we want them to learn about our system of government. We want them to learn about our political culture. And we want them to embrace those things to some extent so that we can continue uh, as a political system itself. But even in saying that, you can hear how contentious it is. Right. And there's a lot of argument right now about whether our system is worth preserving. Uh, that's basically the fundamental argument between conservatives and progressives. Do we even want to have this system or not? And so uh, I think it has to incorporate that as a, as a basic idea. But that's contentious right now. You know, to me, you should be communicating political values very clearly within the classroom. But which political values to communicate? Of course, that makes it tough to do. Absolutely. So it's actually all indoctrination. It's just a question of. Um, who is doing the indoctrinating and what is their worldview and what are they teaching? 
um, which is why I would uh, want the reform of education to do, to be democratized in uh, in ways that we have not experienced maybe since the days of the one room classroom. Like I want to go back. I don't. I want to. In order to go forward, um, I want to go back. I want to go back to people from the community educating the children in the community and doing so in a way that makes sense locally. And when I say locally, I mean as locally as possible. I mean every household. So what makes sense in urban uh, Minneapolis does not make sense in, you know, flyover rural uh, America where we don't have broadband. And so I do um, I do want to take advantage of technology. I want to see broadband available to everybody because I want kids to have access to high-quality education of their parents' choosing, no matter who's doing the teaching. I want, I want my kid to be able to be taught by the best teachers in America, even if those teachers live a 1,000 miles away. And, and technology would enable us to do that. We don't actually have to have a great teacher in every classroom. We have to have a great um, steward of technology in every classroom to make sure that every kid can access, um, you know, w- whatever the best curriculum is that's out there that's being produced right now, not five years ago or not 50 years ago, but right now. I mean, I think the world is changing at such a pace that education is going to have to keep up if we're genuinely going to have kids prepared not only to be good citizens, but also to be, um, you know, in Johnson's view, people who are able to participate in the economy that exists today, not the one that existed 50 years ago. Uh, I I think it's a reasonable argument. Um, But I think one thing that you're going to find out is that the people who tend to do well in educational settings, whether it's a really decentralized one like the one you're talking about, or whether it's something that looks more like what we see today, uh, these are people who come from certain kinds of families. Um, family structure actually has more to do with student success in the classroom than any other variable. You know, not mm. funding, not teacher quality, not curriculum, but family structure and family stability. And so one of the things that we're looking at right now is our educational system struggling because our families are struggling. Mm. Uh, we've seen divorce, you know, ebb and flow out of uh, out of uh, wedlock. Childbirth has, has certainly been high through historic standards right now. And as long as those things continue, it's going to be difficult to get the kind of quality education I think that most of us think that we should have. Uh, The the variable that we have a hard time getting at is how do we build and strengthen families so that then the kids that come out of those families are good students in whatever system we plug them into. Okay, so what department is that? (laughs) Yeah, let's create a new bureau, the Bureau of the Family. That sounds positively (laughs) Orwellian, doesn't it? (laughs) All right. We are. We will um, we will continue this conversation the next time that we have the opportunity. In the meantime, you know, practice that bow tie tying. I'll do my best. We'll do YouTube right. as soon as I can. Exactly. Thanks. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Um, you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. evangelical. We've talked about that from time to time. How do you define that? Are you one? Do you use that term? What is evangelicalism uh, here in the United States? And how do people around the world who self-describe as evangelical or who are a part of evangelicalism in their own nations, how do they see us? Um, Part of understanding ourselves is recognizing how others see us 
And so I thought it would be fun to talk with an evangelical Christian from Sweden today. His name is Joel Haldorf. He's a professor of church history at the Stockholm School of Theology, author of a number of books. Uh, And I am going to lift up today a piece that he has written um, on a website called breakingground.us. It's a tale of two evangelicalisms. A tale of two evangelicalisms. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Every family has a different story. No two kids are the same, and your journey through life will be uniquely wonderful and uniquely different. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Though every family I meet is special, I picked up a few universal lessons that apply to moms and dads everywhere. Here's one. You can choose to be loving even when you don't feel loving. Parenting isn't easy, and there will be times when you want to shut down and give up. But in those moments, you can decide to act apart from your feelings. I've learned that feelings will soon follow if, first, you love as an act of your will. So let that universal statement ring in your mind. Be loving even when you don't feel loving. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Sometimes you read something and you say to yourself, oh, I see myself in the mirror this person is holding up. Uh, That's what happened when I read this piece by Joel Haldorf. He's an associate professor of church history at the Stockholm School of Theology. He's the author of a number of books on evangelicalism, modernity, and politics. Uh, Most recently, Pentecostal Politics in a Secular World. Um, But the piece that I read is at BreakingGround.us. It's entitled A Tale of Two Evangelicalisms. It's in a comparison of Swedish or European evangelicals and American evangelicals. And joining me now to discuss it, Joel Haldorf. Joel, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So as an evangelical Christian from Sweden, you have a perspective on evangelical Christians in the United States— um, you're making some observations. Tell us, um, tell us maybe in in big, broad, sweeping terms what those observations are. Yeah. So the whole thing started when I first went over to the United States and visited there. Stayed there for a year in 2000. And as many European evangelicals, when we come over, we recognize ourselves a lot in the churches with our. When we go to the local evangelical or Pentecostal church, we recognize the hymns, we we recognize the spirituality, much of the theology. But then at coffee afterwards or at dinner when the when we strike up political conversations, we feel a bit often a bit estranged. We don't really recognize ourselves in the in the sort of um, closeness with the Republican Party that has characterized American evangelicalism since the 1970s. So th- this is what I tried to investigate. How is it that we are so similar in theology, but so there is such big differences uh, when it comes to political alliances and political sympathies? Uh, and I've been struggling and working through this question for almost two decades, and that's the, the essay is the, the result of that. So our our national histories 
um, mm-hmm. our national identities. So you're European and or even more narrowly Swedish um, mm-hmm. history and identity has shaped not only maybe your theology, but the expression of that theology in in your own uh, political leanings. And yeah. my American is my, you know, the way that I am American as uh, a, a nation state and the national identity in which I have grown up shapes mm-hmm. my evangelical theology in ways that I cannot see unless you point them out. Right. So yeah. if this actually takes someone who who identifies theologically the same way I identify, right? Evangelical Christians. Um, yeah. But for you as an evangelical Christian from another national identity to say um, that does not actually work itself out in the same way um, in my political thought process as it does in yours. Is that about yeah. does that cap does that capture um, kind of the essence of what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the gist of what I'm trying to say, and, and this has a number of consequences. I mean, for one thing, we need to I think realize that our we are Christians first and foremost, and then we are then we're part of this wonderful democratic societies that we get to we get to get involved politically and vote for political parties. But the the loyalty to Christ, to the church, to theology, that should always be stronger than the political loyalties. But sometimes uh, the political loyalties become so intertwined in who we are. And we've seen that in in U.S. evangelicalism the last few years, uh, particularly where where some scholars even argue that that to, to identify as an evangelical is even um, people are it becomes very much entwined with uh, the identity as a Republican. And of course, that begs some questions. And sometimes to just meet someone who is also an evangelical who says that, hey, actually, where I come from, most evangelicals are liberals, or many of them vote for the Social Democratic Party. Uh, so it doesn't really follow from theology and spirituality to to political conviction. Uh, I think, I hope, uh, and I think that that can be necessary. And, and as as it's been very learning for me to meet American evangelicals and and who have a more conservative leaning and to understand where they come from and how they re- read the Bible. So I'm curious. Um, have you had the opportunity to to meet evangelicals here in the United States who um, maybe are not white um, or or do not worship in uh, predominantly white congregations? who uh, who are more liberal in terms of their social ethic. I mean, I certainly know some. We have one later on the show today. His name is uh, Justin Gibney. Um, but but I will tell you that there are a number of, of evangelicals who I know who are white who would argue you cannot be a Christian and um, vote for Democrats in the United States of America. So the polarization here that you are identifying is quite deep. Yeah, yeah. We we stayed one year in uh, North Carolina in Durham, and then we went to African American churches, and uh, that that was, I mean, that was an interesting experience. Where where spirit, like in terms of spirituality, we were more if farther away from that, but in terms of politics, we I say we because we me and my wife we felt very close because there was this strong, like you say, social uh, activism that was not just working with so, local so, social projects, but also 
politically involved uh, and and that was very interesting to see and also that's also a way to to just um, to just see that uh, the, the political uh, convictions uh, are uh, n- doesn't flow naturally from from the evangelical identity, but that evangelical identity can lead to many different political stances, and I think that is the the important thing to see today in such a polarized climate that we that we have today. Okay, I think that is one of the critical observations that um, that you make in this piece. So I want you to repeat it, um, and that is this: you know, where does it end? There's, there's no. I think here's the pull quote that I had. There's no straight line from evangelical theology and spirituality to one particular political identity. That would yeah. um, surprise a number of listeners. Yeah, but I think I mean I, I think the Christian identity, the the to walk with Christ, that is that is the predominant uh, identity. And then we know that in the church there will be like people of different inclinations, backgrounds. There will be a wide variety of. In the early church, there was like the Jews and the Greeks and the poor and the rich. And in today's uh, congregation, there should be uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, in the same congregation because that is a part of the universality of the church and and the witness. And the witness of the church is not to to get in line with one political party, but to show that we are able to keep the peace within a church, within a congregation, when we have a political diversity. That thing which seems so impossible today, when we look at politicians and we look at the political landscape and the media and so forth, the infighting, the polarization in the church, the kingdom of God, there is peace. And that's something that we really need to, to bear witness to to the world. Okay, and that's the um, topic I want to return to after we take a very brief break. I'm talking with Professor Joel Haldorf, uh, Associate Professor in Church History at the Stockholm School of Theology. We are talking uh, specifically about a piece at BreakingGround.us. It's entitled A Tale of Two Evangelicalisms. He is making observations as an evangelical from Sweden about those of us who are evangelicals here in the United States, Uh, just holding up a mirror to ourselves and helping us see ourselves as a brother in Christ um, from across the pond. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Professor Joel Haldorf from the Stockholm School of Theology. You can follow him on Twitter at J-O-E-L-S-H. And I don't actually know what that stands for. It's like Joel. Yeah, that's my first name. And then someone had taken uh, Joel H. So I had to put the S. So I bet your middle initial is S. Exactly. That's my middle initial. Oh, there you go. Mm -hmm. Joel S. H is the yeah. way I should be reading his Twitter handle. All right. Not Joel. Shh. Okay. I like it, though. All right. So, um, Joel, people are going to want to know, is there a path back? Like, right, they're, they're going to want some good news out of this um, because you're going to lay you're going to lay the bricks out in this piece in such a way that looks like we are um, marching ourselves down a path towards secularization as the church becomes more politicized, people will abandon it uh, in the same way that they have done so in Europe. Um, so talk with us about the path back. How do we, how do we avoid such, such a secularized future? What do evangelicals in the United States need to recover? 
I think, yeah, I think looking back to, to the own history can be very helpful here. And to see that if you look, go back to the 19th century, the, the 18th century, evangelical uh, Christians, they were, I mean, they, they were very concerned about the morality of society. Uh, but when they talked about that, they talked about uh, also the social, social justice questions, uh, the questions of poverty, uh, abolitionism, um, uh, equality uh, between uh, men and women, and so forth. Uh, if you talk about, if you look at a preacher ch- such as Charles Finney, who I assume is mm-hmm. pretty f- famous today still, uh, he, for him, this was a, a great emphasis. He talked about how revival was intimately tied to social justice and human rights, and this is a neglected part of American uh, church history. And again, it shows that there is a, a, a wide wider spectrum of, of political resources to draw upon uh, in the in the evangelical tradition. Uh, and I think that this needs to to be recovered. Um, and also perhaps just just take a step back from the politicization and and realize that 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 should be uh, the church is always political, but not necessarily uh, in a partist partisan way uh, adhering to one political party, uh, but trying to find alliances, uh, and that is often much more easy in, in the, on the local level, uh, reaching out a hand to other churches, to local uh, politicians, and so forth, uh, and again, building a kingdom of peace, uh, fostering peace in the, in the society. I think that that is a road forward. It occurs to me, Joel, that um, one of the things that might be easier for you as a person who visits the United States, um, you know, at some level as a tourist, right, um, yeah. versus those who live here. Like you have an affinity um, affinity with African-American evangelical Christians, and there is, a, there is an ongoing tension in the United States um, between black and white Christians. It's mm. tragic— um, yeah. It's regrettable. We have ongoing conversations about um, not just reconciliation, but, you know, like genuine conciliation. Mm. Um, and you make the observation in this piece that, you know, you you recognized your evangelicalism in African-American uh, Christians here in the United States yeah. um, that you didn't see reflected in white evangelicalism. And I just wanted to say that out loud to our audience um, because there is there is work to do for us in terms of um, walking across the street to churches of color. Yeah, I mean we live in the South again, and and they say that the uh, eleven a.m. hour is the most segregated hour in 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 the uh, in mm-hmm. the South, which which says a lot because there is a lot of segregation going on there. And and of course you saw it in the churches too, and and it is as you say tragic, and and the fact that and again how do you how do you build peace and trust? I mean you do it uh, in in face to face encounters on the local level, like you say walking over uh, to the other church, doing things together, and and building relationships, and to see that this is this is part of the unity of the church. I mean this is something that sometimes. It is as the churches in Europe, we remember that at one time in history, we we used to be one. 
so that is always something that we should strive towards again to recover that unity. Uh, to the U.S., the churches came uh, and were planted, and and there was plurality from the start, and there are many strengths with that. But but sometimes I can feel when I visit the U.S. that sort of there isn't this living memory that we used to be one, and there isn't this reaching out um, between the churches and trying to build something uh, together. And I think, again, today more than ever, that is an important part of the Christian witness to try to do that. Okay, let's um, let's turn the focus uh, towards Sweden for just a moment, because there are uh, people who are texting me in questions that, you know, I think are uh, astute observations. Um, Sweden is not America. America is mm-hmm. not Sweden. Total population of your nation is just over 10 million um, mm. We have a lot of cities that are uh, at least a handful of cities that, you know, are that almost rival that. So we yeah. have 330 million people. It's really big, like geographically. It's really diverse. Um, and so maybe speak to that a little bit. But then also, how has um, the demography of Sweden changed um, through immigration? I think that's an interesting mm. question that people are asking as well, um, because you all are more open to migration right now than uh, than the United States has been in recent history. Yeah, we've had a, a, some big waves of migration the last few decades, and the last one in 2015, and and those have been uh, really um, interesting to see the response. I mean, the churches have been largely in the forefront of welcoming refugees and and taking them in. Uh, a lot of people that come are Christians, so some are Muslims, uh, and and that that has been a really uh, I mean, vitalizing experience from the churches for the churches, because as many will know, Sweden is a highly secular uh, country with only a few percent uh, going to church each Sunday, uh, and the, the church is a minority. Uh, but that does also mean that the churches in Sweden have always um, been optimistic towards uh, pluralism, uh, because we feel that if if we're going for a homogenous society, uh, Christianity will not fit in because we're such a minority position. Uh, so we've been positive to a pluralistic society, and the growing pluralism has really been benefited the churches, uh, I would say. And a lot of churches have, have found that ways to reaching out, they have grown, they have baptized more people, uh, and so forth. So it's been a really... Um, good experience from, for the church. Of course, not without problems in terms of integration and segregation and, and so forth. Uh, on a political level, uh, there, are, there are challenges. But also there, I think the churches feel that they have a mission, a task, they have something to do. Uh, and Christianity needs to be not only thoughts and hearts, but also feats and hands where you actually put your good thoughts uh, to work. So yeah, that's that's just a brief sketch of a complex story, but something. All right, and if we were to come spend the next uh, uh, the next twenty five days um, or maybe longer with you in relationship to Advent and Christmas, what might mm. be some highlights of our experience? Well, this Christmas is so much different because uh, because mm-hmm. of the COVID and the and the the restrictions uh, and to gather and so forth. But but normally, I mean, um, it is 
it is actually an, uh, a month where also the secular Swedes uh, go to church quite often, uh, and and about a quarter of the population visit church uh, on Advent and Christmas. So, and that's actually been growing the last the last few years, uh, and also a lot of work with with the homeless and the poor. I mean, handing out, uh, um, I mean. Uh, gifts and and food and and so forth. I mean, the social work is very important for the church, especially around this time of the year. So there's and, and probably many similarities to the U.S. And Joel, I'm going to ask you to um, to pray for us as evangelical Christians in the United States of America, and we will commit to pray for you um, as well. It's a delight to make your acquaintance today. I hope we can continue the conversation in the future. Thanks. Thanks for. A very interesting conversation, and thanks again for having me. Well, thank you I'll for this essay. Our prayers. Yes, uh, and likewise. That's Joel Haldorf, Associate Professor of Church History at the Stockholm School of Theology. Um, the piece that we were discussing today, you can find it at breakingground.us, a tale of two evangelicalisms. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right, for those of you asking uh, a wealth of questions now about Sweden, uh, here are a few um, things to know. Uh, In Sweden today, Swedes are less dependent on the state than they used to be, uh, more likely to be foreign-born. Actually, uh, one in every three Swedes has a parent who is foreign-born, and they're less likely to have their car stolen than in the past. So apparently they have cars. There you go. See see how little we know about what's going on in other countries. Um, these are Christians with whom we're going to spend eternity. That's our brother in Christ, Joel. And uh, we're going we're gonna to spend eternity with him. So it's always good to get to know the people with whom we're going to spend eternity. Spend a lot of time getting to know people with whom we are not going to spend eternity. Uh, I thought it would be fun to spend a little time with somebody with whom we are going to spend eternity. Think about that today. Think about that today as you make your way through the day, which now uh, lies immediately ahead of all of us. Is this a person with whom I'm going to spend eternity? And if not, what as an evangelical Christian am I called to do in this conversation with this individual that they might gain the hope of eternity, that they might gain a knowledge of the grace of God available to them in Jesus Christ? How might I offer the good and gracious gift of Christ to this person right here, right now, who stands in front of me? In this temporal reality, um, what conversation might I have? What might I say? What might I do? How might I pray for them that might lead them to acknowledge and even receive the good gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ? That is actually what it means to be evangelical. That's it right there, to have a heart for the lost and to express the gospel to them always and in all ways. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.